Well, welcome back, Disciples Church, and uh, let me say, uh, you know, once again, happy anniversary, happy 10th, way to go, my friends. We uh, have much, much more mingling and connecting and hanging out to do as the day goes on. So I, I know that you're looking around the room and seeing somebody you haven't seen in a while or seeing somebody who's here from out of town and you want to connect, please do. We've got quite a party waiting for us outside. It's going to continue to be a fantastic day. There is an ancient Chinese proverb that is succinct and yet to the point and has quite a few messages. And it says, the sage points to the moon and the fool stares at his finger. And certainly it's a proverb to remind us that only a fool needs help finding the moon. I mean, all you really have to do in the dark of night is look up and you'll see the moon. You don't need somebody to help you find the moon, but it also serves, and maybe more powerfully, as a cautionary word to us as the wise, that lest we ever fall in love with anybody looking at our finger. This idea that as we point to the moon, there is a temptation that people will only look to us to see the moon. And over time, they'll lose their interest in actually seeing this wonder in the sky and instead be interested in simply staring at us. We gather this day to celebrate 10 years and it's been a party already and it will continue to be a party. But let me say yet again, as has been said in so many ways, that this day is not about us. It's not about Disciples Church and it sure as heck is not about looking at our finger as we point to Jesus. You can look at my sneakers because they're pretty cool and they were a gift. But aside from that, Let us fix our gaze as we have sung and prayed and spoken. Let us fix our gaze on the author and the perfecter of our faith. Today we celebrate. But to be fully present to God, to be fully present even to one another, we have to also understand and create enough space in the midst to realize that not all of us arrive at this place today full of overwhelming joy, full of exuberance and happiness. With 10 years in the rear view mirror, we arrive at this day of celebration and we've been around long enough to know that we all arrive at this day of celebration with varying levels of just emotional happiness. Some arrive here in the darkest season of your life. Some are interceding and praying for healing that hasn't come yet. And you're saying, God, I just sang all these words and I'm not 100% sure I believe them. Some are in the darkest season of depression you've ever been. Some are mourning the loss that should never have happened. And yet here we are. We have laid down other pursuits of our life, both in general and in this particular day, that we would embark on a journey of choosing to engage with joy this day. And so in this way, we have maybe somewhat unknowingly entered into a much larger story in our midst. The story of God and his people and his road to redemption. 
You see, God's design from the, from the very, very get-go when everything went sideways in Genesis 3, God's design was always to redeem all things, not just all people, but all things, all creation to redeem it, to restore it back to himself, to deliver us back to Eden, as it were. Today, we mirror the story of Israel in so many ways. God and his people and his people who would make this trek down to Jerusalem, this journey to the holy place where they knew they would meet the presence of God. And they would arrive at this holy place having prepared for weeks, if not months, for a festival. And they would gather their children and their things and their animals and their offerings they had been storing up for months. And they would arrive at Jerusalem having climbed the ascent, singing the Psalms of ascent. Prepared. Ready. In good, in bad, in grieving, in joy, in loss, in gain, in prosperity, in poverty. They arrived there with God. So we celebrate this day. And as we take a, a peek back at the 10 years behind us and take a long, hard look at the next 10 in front of us, I believe the Acts of the Apostles and this text in scripture of Acts 16 will serve us well as a backdrop and a foundational picture of what I believe God might be up to both today and in the days to come. If you've got a Bible, turn with me to Acts chapter 16. And uh, if you brought a printed copy of the scriptures, wonderful. If you're using a smartphone, turn it on. And I just suggest Uversion, a fantastic app. And if you go into Uversion and you click in the bottom right corner after you download that app, you click that little hamburger menu and go to more and events, you'll find the Disciples Church event for today. And we've embedded a few extra pieces of content there to help you. And you can even save the notes from today to help you as you go. Acts chapter 16, we're gonna begin in verse six in the moments we have together. Would you pray with me? Father, Son, and Spirit, we arrive together as a community which uh, infers there is unity among us. We come arms locked Fixing our gaze on you, Jesus. Fixing our gaze on a triune God who exists three in one in perfect unity together. And you've made us in your image, so you've designed us to reflect that same unity in your body you call the church. So draw us in, and in the words of King David, would you teach us your ways, O Lord, that we would walk in your truth. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Acts chapter 16, I begin in verse six. Paul and his friends have finished the first of three missionary journeys that the scriptures tell us of. And we embark right at the kickoff of journey number two. And a few things are about to change. Verse six, now Paul and Silas travel to the area of Phyrigia and Galatia. Because the Holy Spirit had prevented them from preaching the word in the province of Asia at that time. Then coming to the borders of Mycenae, they headed north to the province of Bithynia. But again, the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to go there. So instead, they went on through Messiah 
to the seaport of Troas. That night, Paul had a vision and a man from Macedonia in northern Greece was standing there pleading with him, come over to Macedonia and help us. Verse 10, so he decided to leave Macedonia and at once, having concluded that God was calling us to preach the good news there. It blows me away here that twice in a span of these five verses, the Holy Spirit keeps them from doing what I think we would all agree is a real good thing. Like whether you are brand new to Christian faith and just investigating what it might be to follow Jesus or whether you've been walking with God for as many years as you can count, I think we would all agree that if the Holy Spirit is real and if the Holy Spirit speaks to his people, that's a good thing. And if people are efforting to say the name of Jesus, to speak the good news, the gospel. That's a good thing. And so we live in this tension that here they are desiring to go preach the good news. They've left everything behind. And they're like, God, here I am. I'm all yours. I'm ready to serve you. And he goes, well, not there. I don't want you going there. But why, God? I don't want you to go there. On two different occasions. So when the vision comes and opens the door for where they are to go, they must have felt this was the clearest sign they could have. They've been living in this confusion. And not to get too far ahead of myself, but for so many of us, we have spent so many years of our lives living in a confusion saying, God, are you out there? God, are are you still moving? God, are you willing to use me? God, are you going to change my scenario? Takes me back as we anchor so much of this in the story of God and his relationship with his people, Israel. Sometimes I get asked by people, why why do we need the Old Testament? We got the gospels. I go, because the Old Testament, uh, among uh, many, many other things, gives us this picture of how God is with his people. And we get this long story of a people who are unfaithful, who turn from him, who turn to other gods, and God's long faithfulness in one direction to them. And we get this picture that is then exploded in Acts into vivid detail. And I can't help but go back to Exodus chapter 13. Israel's just been released from the captivity and the slavery of Egypt and and they arrive just on the brink of what will be a whole new season for them. And they, they ostensibly kind of look around at each other going, well, now what? Like we're free, but what now? God says to them in Acts chapter, or sorry, in Exodus chapter 13. He says, I'm gonna give you a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to guide you. Stay with the cloud. <laughs> follow the cloud by day, follow the pillar of fire by night. Those are your marching orders right now. And then down the road, just a little bit, he goes, oh, and by the way, I'm gonna feed you as well. I'm gonna drop this manna and only collect what you need for a day. I will prove that I'm your provider. If you gather more than one day's worth, it's gonna go rotten on you anyway. I will provide. 
Jehovah Jireh. I will prove to you that I am your provider and, and I will lead you with my goodness. Cloud by day, pillar of fire by night. And so Paul, I mean, we arrive at this text and we have to keep in mind that the apostle Paul is a really good Jew. Like among Jews, he's a good one. Like he's got it down. He knows the drill. So he's got to be thinking as he's going, God, I'm here to serve you. And, and the Holy Spirit's saying, no, don't go there, don't go there. He's like, God, I, I want to serve you. He's like, ah, don't go there, don't go there. And he's going, wait a minute. I know this story. I know this story, God. You've told this story before. And now I'm living it for my, this story was the story of Israel. You released them and then told them to go to the promised land, but said, ah, don't no, hang a right. Don't go there. I want you to hang a left. Are you with me? Hang a right. Hey, Abraham, head on up the mountain. I'll provide a ram. Do you trust me? I'll provide the ram. And you begin to see this thread all through scripture that God will prove his provision if we will follow. We gotta follow though, people. We, we have to surrender at least long enough to prove him wrong. Okay, it's like anybody who struggled with addiction, the thought of thinking about being sober the rest of your life is a daunting task. So what do you think about? One day. God, I'm going to trust you today. You took my son from me and I don't know how to get through, but I'm gonna get through today. My, my son has an illness and I can't figure out why you won't heal him, but I will trust you today. My marriage is coming apart at the seams and she will not hear my heart. I will trust you for this day. God, I, you've put these gifts in me and I can't seem to use them from the kingdom. I will trust you for this day. And the list goes on and on and on. That's Exodus 13. You get to Exodus 24 and Moses has had however many chapters that is. Do the math for me. 13, 24, it's like 11, right? Nine, 11. My daughter got it wrong, hallelujah. I'm not the only one who can't do math. You get to Exodus 24 and Moses has had enough time to see like how fickle his people are. He's like, all right guys, so here's the deal. I gotta go up the mountain and meet with God. Please don't leave. I mean, I mean, in our life, he's like, seriously, guys, you all suck. And so you're all gonna ditch us. You're all gonna leave God. Just don't do it. And they're like, no problem, Moses. We won't do it. Everybody bring me your earrings. <laughs> it's like five minutes after he's gone and they're melting down jewelry and building a new God. And the cloud hovers over the mountain. And for 40 days, Moses is up there with God and God doesn't move. And they're waiting for him to move. And he doesn't move. And they go, well, I guess we need a new God. I guess the doctors will become our God. I guess my career will become my God because God, you didn't move on my time. I guess my relationships will become my God or my addiction will become my God or my work or fill in your own blank. Those are just mine. So in a few minutes, we're gonna invite the band to take the stage again and we will sing. And we're gonna sing these words, I've seen you move, you move the mountains, and I believe you're gonna do it again. 
Now listen, believing he's gonna do it again isn't just like intellectual assent. Where, you know, like, I believe Jesus actually was a human being who existed. I believe in him. That's not believing in him. Believe is to trust, to place trust in even when you don't believe. See, so many of us have struggled with God in general because we're like, well, the the intellectual assent part of it is really, really hard. And I don't want to make light of our doubts. But what I do want to say is if that is the block to trusting Jesus, we have missed what it is. Because it's not about believing he is this, that, or the other. It's about placing trust even and especially when we don't believe. Some of you who doubt that Jesus is real or that he resurrected or that Jonah was actually in a whale and yet place your trust in God have far more belief than those of us who don't carry those doubts. Hallelujah for those of you who live that out and place your trust in Jesus in spite of the doubts you carry. Hallelujah. I've seen you move. You've moved the mountains and I believe you're gonna do it again. God has always sent the attentive and the available. This is God's nature in his sending nature. He has always sent the attentive and the available. It means we've gotta be attentive enough that if the Holy Spirit says, ah, not there. No, but... Holy Spirit, I really want to get, like, that's the plan, Holy Spirit. I, I'm going there. And he says a second time, nah, don't go there. But it's really good, Holy Spirit. I'm doing this for, you need me, God. It, parenthetical, heavy sarcasm, right? <laughs> God has always said the attentive and the available. Will you be attentive? <laughs> And will you make yourself available? And he will send you. You don't actually have to be as equipped as you think you do or as well read or as straightened out. If you've got a church sticker on the back of your car, stop flipping people off in traffic. That would be a great start. (laughs) Please. All right. Aside from that, the preparation is way less than one might think. Much has been made over the last week about Kanye West's new album. Maybe uh, he's had a true encounter with God and his life is in the early stages of transformation. Um, Maybe, maybe just maybe, he's trolling us. It's possible, it is possible. But either way, I want you to lean into these lyrics uh, that he wrote. And if you're on version, that we embedded them there in there for you. I know God is the force that picked me up. I know Christ is the fountain that filled my cup. I know God is alive. He has opened my vision, given me revelation. This ain't about a dead religion. That sounds terrible when a white guy says it. Jesus brought a revolution. All the captives are forgiven. Time to break down the prison. Every man, every woman. There is freedom from your addiction. Jesus, you have my soul. Sunday service is on a roll. All my idols, I let them go. This is the mission, not a show. This is my eternal soul. Amen and hallelujah. He is not prepared. He is not trained. But I'll tell you, unless he's trolling us, which is possible, that's an attentive and available guy. Would you be willing to be made a fool? 
Would you be willing to show up on the job site tomorrow and tell everyone on your crew, hey guys, hey gals, something happened to me yesterday at church and it's, I, I'm not all worked out yet, but something happened and something shifted in my spirit. And my life is now gonna belong to Jesus. Are you willing to be a fool? Time will tell in the story of Kanye and me, who is just like him, an idiot trying to find his way, <laughs> saying stupid stuff that gets recorded. <laughs> Thankfully, it's just my mother who listens. <laughs> Kanye's got a little problem in that territory, right? Everybody's listening. Time will tell but it's inspired me and encouraged me to lean into a different story for our lives. Because here's the thing, if, if the language of our life becomes that I'm attentive and available for God's leading and he has provided my every need, probably not gonna get that one wrong, right? Probably not gonna get that one wrong. Carry on with me, look at verse 11. We boarded a boat at Troas and we sailed straight across the island and the next day we landed at Neapolitan ice cream. I love Neapolitan so much. <laughs> From there we reached Philippi, a major city, the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. Really important, right? Paul's a Roman citizen. So like, he's gotta be feeling home. He arrives in a Roman colony. And we stayed there several days. Verse 13, I'm in verse 13 if you're with me. On the Sabbath, we went a little way outside the city to a riverbank where we thought people would be meeting for prayer. And we sat down to speak with some women who had gathered there. And one of them was Lydia from Thyatira, a merchant of expensive purple cloth. She worshiped God. As she listened to us, the Lord opened her heart and she accepted what Paul was saying. And she and her whole house were baptized. And she asked us to be her guests. And if you agree that I am truly a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay with me. And she urged us until we agreed. She pestered them. You're coming to my house. Yet again, this is a fascinating shift in things as Paul begins a second missionary journey. And as you and I, as we as a community start our second 10 years together, something has shifted in Paul's life that he saw shift in Israel's life that I think you and I can extrapolate that he is likely to shift in our life as a community of faith. Something has to change. What got us here will not get us where God wants to take us. And I, for one, am attentive as best I know how and available, and I really hope we all are together. Something has shifted for him. He arrives in this Roman colony, and he immediately, after a couple of days, the Sabbath arrives, and he goes outside the gates. This is really important because this is new. In the past, he didn't go outside the gates. In fact, as best I can tell, and correct me if I'm wrong, I, I looked back through Acts with a fine-tooth comb this week, and as best I can tell, this is the first time Paul goes outside the gates. He has always found a synagogue. He has always arrived in a city and gone straight to the synagogue and began to preach the kingdom of Jesus. The the gospel of the kingdom, that the kingdom is now. And he goes to the synagogue into the Jewish 
settlement and preaches this word, but not this time. As if he couldn't find one. And I don't know for sure, maybe Philippi was a new enough city, maybe the Roman colony had a strong enough hold at that point that there wasn't a Jewish synagogue, but for whatever reason, he goes outside the gate. And this is fascinating because everywhere else he goes, he would go to the synagogue. Acts 9, right after his conversion and he gets his sight back, he's in Damascus, he goes to the synagogue. In Antioch and in Pisidia, Acts chapter 13, he goes to the synagogue right after he's been sent out to plant. They set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work that I have for them and the church at Antioch send them off and they go to the synagogue and they preach. In Iconium, in Acts 14, and in Thessalonica, and Berea, and Athens, in Acts 17, and the list goes on and on and on. But we arrive at Acts 16 and he shifts the script and he goes outside the gates of the city. He goes outside the religious enclave. He goes outside the safety of the Jewish synagogue. He goes outside where people would have a foundational truth of God as Yahweh, as their provider. And he arrives at a people in a place where arguably they would be as irreligious as any people around. And to pile on, he goes to a woman. Paul arrives to these women who are praying. And he does not tell them to go home. He sits with them and he announces the kingdom of Jesus' goodness. And then he accepts their invitation. He humbles himself. They had to push a little bit, but I got a feeling to get Paul to do anything you want him to do, you had to push a little bit. And they get him to come back to the house. The best explanation I can think of is that They were so hungry to be used by God that even when they didn't find an enclave of people who thought like them, a people with Jewish descent, they knew that they had to bring the kingdom of Jesus. And so they went outside the gates. Verse 13 reads, on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate by the river where we supposed there was a place of prayer. Why would they suppose that? There's all kinds of explanations and arguments for that. I tend to think it was a pretty river. <laughs> it's where anybody would go to pray. We, we gotta find somebody out here praying. It's, it's the Sabbath. There's gotta be somebody out here praying. And how do you know people are praying? Well, because there's five people with their heads bowed and one person who's always staring off into space. That, uh, that person is usually me. I mean, just imagine Paul and his friends going outside this room. Oh, there's no synagogue. Where do we go? Well, let's get outside the city. There's got to be a remnant. Here's the good truth, is that God is moving outside the gates, using people outside the norm. God is still on the move outside the gates, outside the religious enclaves, outside the places where you think he would be on the move. And he's still using people outside the norm. Many of you are those people who have been outside the norm that God has used in miraculous and powerful ways. You may be looking at your life and thinking, no way God would use me in the state I'm in. Or maybe you felt your whole life has been lived outside the gates, outside the accepted norms. 
Acts chapter 16 reminds us that in the next missionary journey, in the next 10, it will take all of us living outside the gates, announcing the kingdom of Jesus is alive and well, and looking for those who pray and gathering with them and telling them about the kingdom of Jesus. In the very earliest days of Disciples Church, we were meeting about 40 of us in a little elementary school multipurpose room. Sean alluded to it earlier. Some of you were in that room and it was terrible. I mean, we did our best with it, but it just wasn't an awesome space. But over the early months, I began to see these straggling groups of people begin to come and become one people. And that warmed my heart as a young pastor who had zero clue what I was doing. And I remember one particular Sunday prior to the service, the band and, and a few other people are all kind of standing in a circle in the back of this multi-purpose room. And it was probably everybody who was there at that point in the morning, maybe 10, 12 people in a, a pretty tight circle talking and having fun. And I was standing off a little bit watching it with kind of great sort of paternal pride, as achy as that may sound, but just sort of this fatherly loving what I was seeing. And, and I see out of the corner of my eye in the front door behind them where only a few would be able to see the person walk in, walks in a fairly frail, small man inching in the room with a cane. Nothing could be further outside the gates or outside the norm of what disciples was in that day. In that day and time, I was the oldest guy in the room by 10, 12 years every time. And this small, frail man walks in and I stand there and my immediate inkling as a pastor is to cut right through the circle of our people and go greet him and welcome him. And can I get your coffee? What can I do? Can I get your chair? You know. Sorry for those of you who've experienced that version of me. But something stopped me. I didn't know it at the time, but I think it was the Holy Spirit, much like Acts 16, stopping me and saying, nope, not your assignment, no go. And I stood and I watched the circle. And then it hit me, I thought, oh, this is our moment. This will be the first of many tipping points where we decide if we will be a place where there's room at the table or if we will just be happy with who we are. And I watched the eyes rise up from a few people facing and the people across the circle catch eyes and turn around and I just watched the circle open right up and people go over and meet this man. It was a beautiful moment in the life of our church. And it was one of those throwaway experiences that few probably remember who were in the room, but it will never leave my memory. His name is Ron Calkins. Ron had come because an old high school friend of his who lived on the East Coast knew me from years ago and they had moved and they had connected, reconnected on Facebook. And Ron had reached out to them on Facebook asking about life and faith. He had been raised in another faith tradition and was far from God and hoping to find his way back. And he connects with his friend from across the country and they go, hey, I know this guy, Stu, who just started a church, go check it out. And in Ron walked. And in a matter of a couple of weeks, he surrendered his life to Christ and he was our first ever baptism as Disciples Church. God is moving outside the gates. 
and he will use us if we are available and attentive. God is moving outside the gates. Let us live together and lift the name of Jesus. Lift the name of God high. Remember that he is our Jehovah Jireh, our provider. He is our Adonai, our rock redeemer. May we be the kind of people in the next 10 who move with great boldness, with great joy outside the gates of the religious enclave, armed with the truth that the king is alive and that we will not be stopped and we will go in the power of the spirit. Stand to your feet, if you will. Lord Jesus, may the stories of this community of faith and may the stories of your people at Disciples forever Extend the mission that you have made in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.